Welcome to Radio Saxivore, a podcast from the UK's most northerly island of Unst. This small island of just 46 square miles is home to 650 people and to Saxivore Spaceport, the country's first vertical launch programme. Throughout this podcast, we will offer a series of unique insights into the design, build and operations of Saxivore Spaceport, whilst giving you a taste of Shetland life. My name is Emily Strang. And my name is Bryden Priest. And this is Radio Saxaboard. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Radio Saxaboard podcast. Bryden and I are together again. Yeah. We're in person still. It's a miracle. Straight after we've recorded the last episode. <laughs> they don't need to know that. <laughs> well, now I've said it. Yeah. Well. Um, we have another exciting interview type thing today. Yeah, another live talk. Yeah, it's a live talk. This uh, talk followed straight after Chris Dyer's talk on um, the Friday during Unstest a couple of weeks ago. Um, And this was kind of, because the press release had come out that morning about the things they'd found on site, then we thought it would be good for um, Katie to share that with the group and kind of go into a bit more detail since they were going on site in minibuses and they were probably going to see some of this um, exciting things that have been found. I'm not going to try and explain uh, any of the things that were found. Uh, I know it's very exciting, um, but I'll let Katie do that for, for herself. Um, so I hope you really enjoy. My name is Katie. I work for AFC Archaeology. Um, and I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the archaeology we've discovered at Lambanet. And then I'm sure you might be able to tell me more about the archaeology around here. Uh, right, so I guess the first question is why were there archaeologists involved at all in building a spaceport? Um, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, most of the peninsula is a scheduled monument. Um, and that's because of the skull chain radar base. Um, so a scheduled monument means it's under extremely high legal protection. Um, and that's because it is nationally significant in terms of archaeology. It's a really good example of its type. It's really well preserved. And it's the most northerly early warning system in Britain. Um, so it's considered that there's lots of evidence there for the construction, the use, and the abandonment of this site, and understanding more about its role in World War II. Um, so in advance of doing any works, Saxe Award worked with Historic Environment Scotland to agree a plan of works to ensure that it's properly recorded, it's properly preserved in the right way. And then they contracted us, AOC, to carry out those works. So the first thing we did was send people to do walkover surveys. We walked across the land and recorded things using photo. They did LIDAR survey, drone survey, and we've made 3D models of any of the buildings that are being affected as well. Then the fieldwork team came up in March 2022. Um, and made sure to do any detailed recording of any affected buildings as well. So we've excavated around to look at the foundations of these buildings and finding things that were, have been buried. So this is a stone laid as a footpath. Is a, as you're aware, the ground can be quite muddy. Um, we're looking at the foundations of that building. This is one of the bomb craters. So another part of our role is ensuring that while the works are being carried out, certain things are definitely protected. So even though the machines are working in that area, that the crater itself remains protected. The other thing that we do is we monitor any areas of groundworks to see if there's anything unexpected coming up. So we know about a certain amount, 
but then there's lots <coughs> that may be hidden. So that's another part of our job. Um, we spend a lot of time looking at the foundations. This is Colin, six foot two lad, uh, and the foundations of that are going all the way to the bottom there. Um, we're finding bits of brick walls, and again, all of this was buried, so this is all contributing to a, a fuller story of how things were constructed at the base. Uh, we're also looking at the environmental history, so we're getting lots of layers of peat, peat, and we take samples of that to kind of rebuild the climatic history of the site and of Shetland more widely. Um, and this is some of the stuff that, we, that wasn't visible that we've uncovered. So this is an old footpath, a World War II footpath that they built. And this is the foundations of a billet hut, I believe. Um, so again, this is all coming together um, to form part of the picture. A billet hut. Now, what a billet hut is, I don't really know. But I'll leave that to the experts. Um, it hasn't always been easy for the team. They've been working here since March 2022. You're all hardy and in, used to dealing with the Shetland weather, but they have not been, and it hasn't always been easy. They've been dealing with snow and rain. Here's young Lizzie trudging through some peat and celebrating her 25th birthday in the snow on site last April. Um, but it hasn't always been like that, and all of the teams, some of them have worked here for months, have said how much they actually love us, how welcome they have felt here, and how beautiful it is especially when the sun shines, which it does. Um, and they have found some really interesting things as well. So this is Colin with one of the bullets that was found. So we found quite a lot of bullets. Um, I believe a lot of them are fired as well. Some of them, or at least one of them, was found lodged in the gable end of a building. That, so that had been shot in from during one of the German strafes. So that's quite interesting. Uh, this is an ammo box that has been reused for geocaching. Uh, so that's you know, people going out finding, hiding boxes and finding them again. Um, so that has been retained and I think maybe reused in that purpose as well. This is a mug that has written on it, so find the Latin phrase, servitor servientum. So this means servant of those serving. So this is the emblem of the Navy, Army, Air Force Institute. So it is a mug. Maybe there might have been lots of mugs of that kind used on the base. So that's, they found loads of examples of that. This is part of one of the circuit boards. And when we're thinking about it being a radar base, that's, sort of, that's quite interesting and really a huge part of the story as well. And a figurine that was found at the domestic site. I believe there's lots of stories of kids going and playing there as well. Um, and some more personal items. A World War II shoe that's been lost and some gaming pieces. It's a little bit tricky to see. We think this is a, like a piece from a drafts board and this might be part of a dart. Um, and this is one of my favourite pieces. Um, so this is a section of copper pipe that someone has turned into a flute or a recorder or something like that, um, which I think is really nice. It kind of gives you a real insight into sort of the ingenuity of the fellows who are serving here and how they were trying to find things to pass their time in between um, yeah, especially in maybe those long winter nights in Shetland. <laughs> and as you'll all know, they were known locally as the Brill Cream Boys. And here we have direct evidence of this. Brill Cream tubes, loads of these. We found so many of these. These are actually Brill Cream bottles as well. You can't really see it, but these are Brill Cream bottles. And of course, 
You've got to have your comb as well. So we found some tortoiseshell combs. Hasn't been cleaned yet. We will clean it. <laughs> um, so there's a really nice kind of insight into the personal elements of the men who served here. Um, and tying all this together with some of the diary entries, I think we're really going to get some really interesting stories coming out of this. Now, as I said, we were also here to monitor in case anything unexpected comes up. So uh, last month, um, I came up and in the first few hours of the first day, we started uncovering sort of white quartz pebbles. And there are quite a lot around, but it was just the density was a little bit unusual. So we'll have a look and see. And we kept cleaning, or Craig kept cleaning, and uncovered this. So this is a quartz platform. It's been set into the ground with bigger stones at either end. We don't really know what it was used for per se, but we do know that these stones and set stone settings like this are really important in the Bronze Age. So uh, you're talking kind of 4,000 years ago, so 2,200 to 1,800 BC. Um, they're often associated with burials. It's possible there had been a burial higher up. It didn't survive. The ground is also very acidic, so bone doesn't survive very well. Um, or it may have been part of something wider. So we looked in the wider area as well, we kept working, and we started finding these big boulders, and these have been set into pits, so they're not naturally occurring there. They have been moved into these large pits and sticking out a little bit, and they're forming arcs in the landscape. Um, and around them are these pits as well. These are, it's quite hard to see. There's a good example of one there that's almost a metre across and we're finding those in the area. And some of them probably did have stones as well that have been removed. Um, and in addition to that, we're finding cremated bone. So these are cremation deposits. So it's dense deposits of burnt cremated bone and charcoal that's been placed in the ground in small areas. Now, some of this may have been in urns. I think this one probably isn't an urn, and that's just a close-up of some of that there. Some of it may have been placed in small pits. We would never have known any of this was here if it weren't for the works. We haven't started excavating any of it yet either. Um, so it is early days. We're not sure how much of this is going to survive. And just to look at a plan of what we have. So that is where all those cremations are showing up there. You'll be taken down the bus along this road. And we're getting a lot of the stones are forming a big arc there with all the pits around there as well. So lots of stuff going on. The team are excavating at the moment, so again, it is very early days to be saying anything as to what we think is going on, but whatever is going on, it's, uh, we think, a Bronze Age site of some sort, although it may have been used over generations, um, and it's certainly the most northerly example of its type in Britain. But looking across the wider area, as uh, it's really important to look at these things in context, looking at, I know this is really hard to read, so don't worry about reading it, most of these are marking standing stones, and I'm sure a lot of you will be familiar with a lot of these standing stones. Um, so we're seeing that there is quite a lot of activity. It's really hard to date a standing stone, but they generally are attributed to the Bronze Age. So around the same age is what we're looking at. And looking a bit closer, this is our site here, which we're calling a cremation cemetery. If you look up the hill to the west, there's two cairns up there that we think are Neolithic, so maybe a thousand years older maybe 1,500 years older than our cremation cemetery, but within direct line of sight. Down at Norwich, there is records of a stone setting known as Bartles Kirk. And nearby to that, 
There is a burnt mound, so a mound of burnt stones arranged, usually in a crescent shape. Um, and that was investigated about 100 years ago, and they found what they called cinerary urns, so large pots, probably of steatite, with cremated remains within them. Um, and as usually the case with this stuff, when it happened at the end of the 19th century, everything's disappeared. We do have that record. And similarly, in Harrowswick, we have a very similar site of a burnt mound with cremation urns within that as well. Again, we don't have these things anymore. They've sort of disappeared. We have standing stones in the wider area, the Bronze Age kiss at Mokulhyog, the steatite quarry, which may well have had earlier evidence, and enclosures and field systems in the east as well. So there's a lot going on here. And um, the important point about all of this is that we would never have known this site was here, but it's a really great opportunity to understand all of these in better detail, to understand the prehistory of Shetland in better detail. We now have the opportunity to do DNA analysis, to do isotopic analysis. Isotopes and DNA can tell us about who the people were, what their age was, their sex was, where they grew up, um, where they were born, if that was different. There's lots and lots of potential there to get lots of information. And how these practices of aligning stones, of setting stones in the ground, digging these pits, how does that relate to these sites? And how does it relate to Shetland more widely, to the Northern Isles more widely, the rest of Scotland and Britain? Because we are seeing these kinds of things happening across the British Isles. This would be related to sites like Stonehenge. Um, so how is it fitting in and how do these people regard themselves in that setting? Um, so it's a fantastic opportunity. So just to jump to the end, what's next is, as I say, we are at the moment excavating it. Uh, we're working together with Historic Environment Scotland to be at the full support of Saxavord to ensure that it is excavated properly, with full respect, that everything is being recorded. Um, Hopefully, if we are finding a lot of artefacts, that they will be able to come back to Unst at some point. I think that would always be the best thing, if possible. Then we will carry out a full programme of post-excavation, so we'll make sure all the artefacts are studied and recorded properly. Um, and that goes for all of the World War II elements that we found as well, that will all be integrated properly in a full publication and report. Um, and this will be, as well, disseminated through interpretation panels, um, and different ways where it will be available to the public as well. It's not going to disappear. Uh, so this all does take time, but that is the plan going forward. And of course, we are going to be continuing to monitor the works. So who knows what's going to turn up next. Um, but yeah, thank you. And if you have any questions or insights. Yes? Do you have any idea during the Bronze Age how many people lived here? Oh. That is a, that's a difficult question. Well, these islands are much the same then as it is now. I think the climate was quite different, but again, that's we're taking samples from those peat, uh, some of our peat deposits are four metres. Uh, we're taking uh, samples from those, so we'll do pollen analysis, and that'll give us an insight into what that climate was like. I think it was better, particularly early Bronze Age, and by the late Bronze Age, it was maybe more similar to now. In terms of numbers of people, I mean, it's kind of a, if you look at a row of houses today, you don't always get the same number of people living in each house, so it's really hard to get an idea in that. You always just kind of have a scale, an idea. But I think if we have a better idea of the climate and resources, unfortunately, Shetland has never seen the same degree of academic interest or research, at least, as Orkney has. 
um, and there hasn't been as much development, so we haven't had those opportunities where most of Scot or, well, southern Scotland, uh, there's been huge discoveries because of development, we haven't had the same stuff here. So it, that will definitely be, I would say, on the research agenda that's being developed at the moment, that would come into it in terms of population, population change, do we have incomers coming in, how much has it changed, how similar is it to before and after. So. Could I say something on the population? Yes, mm -hmm. just, absolutely. Just, <clears throat> there was a really interesting study that was done by uh, Noel Foyer, who's, who might be a name that's, that's known in, in, in Shetland. He, he published a book, Prehistoric and Viking Shetland, and his, part of his doctoral thesis was to look at prehistoric like known prehistoric settlements in Shetland and extrapolate that out. So if, if there's you know, X number in a square mile, can you get a sort of an average? And his figure that he's kind of all parked about this is mainly for the Neolithic is between eight, eight and ten thousand. Now, of course, there's not there's no census enumerators that are going around kind of challenging that, but that seems to be a a, a, a Shetland ballpark figure. Climate again is a, is another really interesting one, and I suppose one argument could be that, and and again, this is looking at excavated and dated Neolithic sites, that that it does seem to be a slightly richer landscape in terms of the Bronze Age. Now, could that imply? climatic deterioration because through the Neolithic you're getting field systems, you're getting settlement sites and, and, and kind of masonry, whereas the Bronze Age was was comically, but maybe there's a degree of truth in this, referred to by, by Brian Smith, the, the Shetland archivist, um, and he refers to the, the Bronze Age in Shetland as a washout. Now, now is that because, I mean, you know, you, you think of <clears throat> archaeological monuments that, that, that set an era in time, and so for example, if you said like the Iron Age, you would say the Brocks. If you said mm -hmm. the Vikings, you would say the Longhouses. And the Bronze Age, and, and, and the Neolithic structures, you might be looking at homesteads and field systems. And the Bronze Age, you have your, your burnt mounds, mm -hmm. which are quite sort of ephemeral in places, and they're not necessarily structural, they're not necessarily domestic residents. There's, there's elements going alongside that, potentially with some burnt mounds, like pottery production and things like that. Um, but could that imply that the population is is less during the Bronze Age. Anything that you unearth that's worth keeping, mm -hmm. any idea where it will go? Uh, well, there's a whole system that follows. So, I mean, we will keep pretty much everything. We sample everything um, in the first instance. Um, but in terms of artifacts and certainly human remains, first it'll get studied and then there, it may go to treasure trove and they will make some decisions about it and then usually what happens is museums get to bid as to who wants to take it essentially and then it kind of comes out in that way uh, but you can certainly you can you can make a case as to why it goes one place more than another so it will be it'll be a few years but it's definitely something to keep an eye on okay. I think uh, as far as I can gather uh, Frank from Saxford is very keen to have it come back here, if possible. Extend the Heritage Centre and, and have it here, and I think that would be great. I think that would be ideal. That was the question, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was up to me, absolutely. Um, but yeah, there will be lots of procedures that will follow that way, but I think the creation of lots more local Heritage Centres, keeping archaeology where it's been found, that is the way forward, certainly. There's a, there's a whole debate around this issue, but I think um, that is going to become a bigger and bigger thing. Well, I hope that gave you a bit of an insight into the significance of what's been found and um, I know Katie at the end there kind of spoke a bit about 
what she thinks might happen now and what the future holds for what they found, what they might find in the future and um, where that those things might end up and um, whether they stay on site or whether they might end up in a museum and how that process all works. Um, I really enjoyed um, getting to hear her talk. Yes, for sure. And also I think the biggest thing is like what this means for the island as a whole and how exciting it is to have been found where... Well, I, I think um, Frank actually puts it well from the from the Bronze Age to the Space Age yep. is what they're... Get that on a T-shirt as yeah. well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we won't keep you much longer. This week, it's actually a song that I wrote um, for my grandpa. Uh, I played it li- live on the Saxophone Sessions, which go have a look on Facebook every Sunday, about half one, I think, with Peter Wood. It's brilliant brilliant show but yeah so i played this song live and i hope you enjoy it it's a little bit sadder than the usual stuff we put on at the end but it's pretty bittersweet and i hope you enjoy it so we will leave you with that and see you next episode there's an empty chair Every Sunday At the table At home And no one can bear To move it No one's able At all And we're told To remember The good times But all we're thinking Is you're not there So as we sit down at the table, we pretend there's no empty chair. Oh, the April sun is beaming, just like the year before. But this time something's missing And I don't want to miss you anymore I could cry a river Over empty tables and empty chairs There's an empty house down the street With an empty garden too Now people go in and out of it But it only reminds me of you Now the flowers, yeah, they are blooming And the birds are still there And I know you're looking down every Sunday And you're in the empty chair I could cry 
empty chairs But why river and or in the clouds I know I could cry a river Over empty tables and empty chairs But why a river when you're in the clouds And I know and I know, and I know you're happier than You've been listening to Radio Saxoford. Join us every Sunday for a new episode. To follow the progress of Saxford Spaceport, visit our website, saxavord.com. And to keep updated on the podcast, join the conversation on Instagram and Twitter at Radio Saxford and use hashtag Saxford Sundays. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.